you would open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, and we will be starting in verse 38 this time. And once you are there, Luke chapter 4, verse 38, if you could stand and join me for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 4, starting in verse uh, 38. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of the many crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. So as we continue our study in the Gospel of Luke, uh, I just want to remind you of where we came from last week, because last week and this week, these accounts all take place relatively within the same period of time. So last week, we saw Jesus in a synagogue doing an exorcism, performing an exorcism. And then this week is the continuation of the events that proceed in that subsequent time period. So you have him in the synagogue performing an exorcism, and then the subsequent events all in one day's time is what we see taking place. And so the title of this study today is A Day in the Life. And we get to see what a day in the life of ministry with Jesus looks like. So if you've ever wanted a sneak peek, Luke gives us a nice summary of these accounts uh, in the verses that close off chapter four. The first of these things we're gonna see is the afternoon account of what Jesus does. And you'll see that with us in verse 38 and 39 of the text. And we have a lot to get into, so we're gonna get right into the text. Verse 38, and he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. So the first thing you'll notice in this afternoon account of Jesus's life is right after he's finished preaching and performing an exorcism, he goes, leaving the synagogue, most likely to have a meal. So he's gonna to try to recuperate, regain some energy, regain some sustenance, and then he's likely going to go back out the next day and continue his teaching ministry. But instead of that, ministry continues to find him, and when he arrives at the house of Simon Peter, you'll see that the mother-in-law of Simon Peter is ill. So his ministry duties don't stop when he leaves the synagogue. Instead, he leaves one ministry context and enters another. And it's worth noting that this Simon here is Simon Peter, Peter who, Jeter, uh, who Jesus will later rename as uh, Simon, who he will later rename as Peter or Cephas, uh, the rock. But right now he's still referred to as Simon. He hasn't yet been called to be an apostle or a disciple. And this Simon is married. This is Simon's mother-in-law, which means Simon has a wife. And Paul will refer to this in 1 Corinthians, referring to the wife of Peter and implying that apostles had wives. And so this is not to be uh, mistaken here. This is the same guy who we see later in the New Testament. And I want to point out a few things about this. The first is that uh, we see that not only is it his mother-in-law, but Jesus isn't expecting to go into this context, right? 
It says that they get to the house and it's at that moment that they realize that she has a fever. So it's not that they were aware of these things before uh, this happens. Jesus is likely going to the house to get some rest, get some recovery. And then you see that they come upon his mother-in-law who has a very high fever. Now it's worth noting that the word here that's used for fever is not necessarily one that is explicit for a, a physical ailment. Uh, in fact, it could, it could just as likely be interpreted a high affliction. But there's a lot of contextual clues that allow us to uh, understand that it's likely to be interpreted as a physical ailment. Most likely, uh, the other translators who have gone in history's past have seen in this context not the presence of another exorcism uh, in, this, in this text, but we see the presence of a physical ailment. And there's one thing that is missing if this was an exorcism, right? So you can see two things that might cause some confusion. One is the presence of a high fever or a high affliction. And then you will see later in the text that Jesus rebukes this fever. And that wording, rebuking, uh, could lead us to believe that he's interacting with another demon or another demonic force. But there's one big thing that is missing from this motif as is present in all the other exorcisms we see in the text, which is the demon actually leaving. We see the fever leave, but most of the times when demons leave, they leave with quite a bit of protest. So this is likely best understood as a fever, as a high fever, one that is laid her up in bed and she is so sick that she can't move. She's so ill, she can't serve them. And we see this because you see in verse 39 that he has to stand over her to rebuke the fever. So she's laying down, she's laid in bed, and she is very, very sick. So you see then that he goes to the fever and he rebukes it. And when he rebukes the fever, the fever immediately leaves her. And this is very typical anytime Jesus does any kind of healing work is the response is an immediate uh, solution to the problem. So when Jesus, earlier we saw him when he casts out the demons, he rebukes the demon and the demon leaves immediately. And in this case, we see him rebuking the fever and the fever leaves immediately. And that is uh, to, to show us that Jesus not only has uh, authority and power over the supernatural realm, the world of evil, but he also has power and authority over the natural realm, the physical world. And this, for us as Westerners, can be very difficult to understand because we live in a society and in a world where we have modern medicine. And we have uh, a great many ways to uh, cure illnesses and sicknesses. And we don't understand many diseases as operating this way. So if you uh, are familiar with your own experience with uh, any kind of high fever, this is not, you know, someone puts their uh, hand on your forehead and says, uh, you're good, you don't have to go get that checked out. This is a high fever where like, we're talking like laid up for many days with the flu kind of fever, where she's physically weak, she can't get up out of bed. And you see when he rebukes the fever, not only does it leave her immediately, so not only is the fever gone, but also she's up and ready to serve the people which means she has had a complete recovery in a brief span of time, which is different than how we see fevers leaving people. You see in Western medicine, when you treat someone for a disease, you, the fever can leave them usually over the course of time after you start taking medication, but it's after a few days maybe that they might regain their strength, regain their functionality, and ultimately get up out of bed to be a fully functioning member of the family again. But in this case, when Jesus cures this fever, we see an immediate healing and an immediate removal of that fever. And this should not, for us, cause us to think that Luke has uh, recorded this in such a way in which he's fudged the numbers and details a little bit. Luke is a physician, and he knows how fevers work, most likely better than you and I do, because he's a trained physician, and he records it in this way, 
which means he's trying to reveal something about the text to us. He's trying to reveal something through this story about Jesus. And what he's telling us, which he will, he will tell us again later in chapter 8 of his gospel account, is that Jesus has complete unequivocal authority over the natural world. In chapter 8 of Luke's gospel, chapter 8, verse 22, you see that Jesus is standing on a boat, or he's sleeping on a boat, and he has to rebuke the winds and the waves. So then he rebukes now an inanimate set of, um, set of the earth, the, the winds and the waves. They, they don't have a personality, they don't have willpower, and he rebukes them, and they immediately respond and obey him. So therefore, we can conclude from these texts that Jesus, like God, has complete dominating authority over the natural world. So it's not so much that Jesus has to obey the laws of nature, so much as the laws of nature have to obey Jesus. And this constitutes for us a miracle. The miraculous and the miracles that we see in the text of scripture, it's important that we get them right. Okay? Often in our culture and in our context, we use the word miracle to mean a great many number of things. We can use the word miracle or miraculous to refer to something that's rare when it occurs. But a miracle is when reality is suspended and something divine has occurred. A miracle cannot happen unless the divine speaks into life and suspends the laws of nature for something to take place. A miraculous healing is when someone who cannot walk gets up and walks. A miraculous leaving of the fever or rebuking of the fever is when the fever leaves and it's as a, though a complete restoration has now taken place. And so the miraculous is something we need to understand well as we examine the text of scripture. And uh, another thing that we can see here uh, in, in this text is not only does he rebuke the fever, not only does the fever leave her immediately, but the response of Simon's mother-in-law is one of service for her healing. So something you will see throughout the text of scripture, and Luke portrays this very well, is when people respond to the gospel, he kind of gives us different categories and groups of people and how they respond. The Pharisees, we can usually predict how they're gonna to respond to something Jesus does. Another group of people that we can predictably uh, reason how they're gonna respond is women. When you see women getting healed by Jesus, they respond typically in a very favorable and positive light in the gospel account. Here, she is going to be the model of what it looks like to respond. She responds and immediately begins serving her Lord. Later in Luke's account, he'll give us the account of 10 lepers, nine of which completely ignore Jesus after he heals them. And that is a very impoverished group, but what Luke is trying to communicate to us here is that there are certain groups of people, there are certain marginalized communities, there are certain uh, subsets of the population that seem to objectively respond more favorably to the call of Christ. And that is true, and if you look throughout church history, it is true that the marginalized, the poor, the slaves, and women are most likely the dominant group of any church in the early church culture. And that's true in the Roman church. If you read the book of Acts, you will see that same kind of pattern emerging. And it's just an interesting thing to note. And you can, in your own time, study that and try to come to your own reasons as to why that is the case. But nevertheless, we see that happening. And she here models for us what it looks like to respond to the healing of God. When God intervenes in her life and saves her from the fever, she immediately turns around and begins to serve her Lord. And we, when we are healed from our sickness and our affliction, must respond in the same way. Paul, when he is rescued from his uh, rebellion against the Lord, he, he immediately begins to refer to himself as a servant or a slave of Christ Jesus. And that is not accidental language. That is not even unique to Paul. 
Peter refers to himself in similar terms. Timothy refers to himself in similar terms. And so as we see the unveiling of the revelation in the New Testament, we are led to believe that when God releases us from our former oppressions, he releases us into a life of service and worship of him, not into a life of our own uh, command and our own doing. So the Christian call is one of release from the slavery of sin and subservience to God. It's not released to do whatever we want to do. And she, uh, in many senses, models that for us here in this text. So we have then in the first instance, the first two verses then, uh, the personification of a fever. And this is uh, simply an afternoon in the life of Jesus. You see uh, two verses then constitute uh, a great miraculous work. And then uh, you will see uh, what Jesus does in his evenings. So in verse 40, you're going to see how he spends uh, the closing time in his day. And in verse 40, it begins like this. Now, the sun, now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hand on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. So not only uh, in this text do we see that Jesus performs miracles, uh, miraculous healing, in this case of Simon's mother-in-law, but then he goes on and he begins to expand and open up the kind of miracles that he's doing. And now he performs healings of a great number of people that are in this region, as well as a great number of exorcisms as well. So just to give you kind of the structure of this text in Luke so far, we've seen Jesus preaching earlier in Luke chapter four, and then we saw him perform an exorcism. And then we saw him do a healing. All of those were one instance of him preaching, one instance of him doing an exorcism, and one, imp- one instance of him doing a healing. And then you kind of get a reverse unfolding of that structure, where in verse 40, you see him do many healings. Then you see him do many exorcisms. And then you see him at the close of chapter 4 say he's going to go on and continue preaching. And so Luke gives us this kind of chiastic structure in chapter 4 of this gospel where he he opens it up with single accounts of these things and then says that as Jesus closes his ministry, in summary, he does this all the time. He does this on a profound, much larger scale. And if what Luke records for us here in verse 40 and 41 is correct, we have single-handedly outdone all of the miracles we've ever seen in the Old Testament performed in one evening by Jesus. Jesus has in one evening blown through the water, Elijah, Elisha, Moses, all of their ministries in just one evening. Just one time, a lot of people come and they're sick and Jesus takes care of all of it. And he is showing himself to be completely different than any of the prophets who've come before him. He's showing himself to be possessed by the Holy Spirit in a way that no one else before him was possessed. He's showing himself to reveal the kingdom of God in a way that no one else before him has ever revealed the kingdom of God. And this is, this is worth noting. Uh, I, I mentioned earlier that when Jesus commands the, the fever and when he rebukes it, it leaves immediately. And we see here in verse 40 and in verse 41, that same kind of urgency when he speaks. He lays his hands on people and the various diseases are immediately healed from them. And you see him casting out the demons and he rebukes them and the demons immediately leave. And this is a consistent theme in the miraculous with Jesus. And this should for us call into much question many of the same kinds of claims of healing that we see today. The miraculous in the text of scripture has a certain kind of character that is undeniable. Those miraculous accounts that we see here are immediate, which is in much contrast to the kind of healings that we see today in our life. The other thing is that these are public healings. They are undeniable, they're irrefutable, 
and they are obvious to everyone around them what is happening. It's not as though Jesus is healing some vague symptoms of pain and asking people later if they're okay, or he's praying for them and then weeks later following up and seeing if that pain has subsided. Jesus is, in a very real sense, doing things that are totally irrefutable. They're things that no one can reject as having occurred. And we should, in many instances, consider what is the purpose then of getting this account in Luke's gospel? Because why does Luke tell us about these things that Jesus does? Is it so that we, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, can mimic the things that he does? Is it so that we can follow up and continue on these kinds of healing ministries as Jesus does? Is that why Luke gives us this account? Well, I propose to you that that's not the case, but I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to take the word of scripture for it. The reason Luke gives us these accounts, and this is what I'm going to put in front of you, is because he is trying to confirm that Jesus is a is one who is sent by God. That's what he's trying to show us. He's not trying to show us that we should go therefore and do all of the same miracles and healings that Jesus does. He's trying to show us that Jesus is in fact the one who he said he was going to be. And we can look at a few cross-references, but the first one, and the one I find most interesting, is actually was pointed out by R.C. Sproul in this text. And if you will turn with me to Exodus chapter 4, we're going to look at that first cross-reference. So Exodus chapter 4, will hopefully show you that this is not something unique to Jesus. This is not something we only see of Jesus in the New Testament. You remember the story of Exodus chapter 4? I'm going to catch you up to speed real quick. Moses has fled Egypt. He uh, is supposed to now uh, be in hiding. And he uh, one day is attending his sheep, and he sees a burning bush, and the burning bush calls him, to go back to Egypt and to lead the Israelites from slavery. And he's supposed to go directly to Pharaoh and command the the Egyptians to let the Israelites go. And in in chapter 4 of Exodus, verse 1, you will see this. And then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say that the Lord did not appear to you. So you notice the dilemma that Moses has. He says that no one's going to believe me when I go to tell them these things. And notice what the Lord says to him. The Lord says to him, what is this in your hand? And he says, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and he caught it and it became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. And again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he looked at it, he took it out. And behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it onto the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. So notice what the Lord is doing. The Lord is sealing Moses as the one who is sent by him by signs and wonders and gifts that Moses is to perform. The Lord is not expecting the, the Israelites, or sorry, the Egyptians to take what is said at face value. He's in fact expecting a kind of rebuttal. And what he says is, Moses, when you go to Pharaoh, when you go to tell him that here I am from God and I'm going to lead the people of Israel people of Israel from slavery, he knows that Pharaoh's not going to believe him. 
So what he does is he seals Moses as his sent servant with the miraculous gifts. He says that Moses comes bearing gifts and signs, and this is my seal upon Moses that he is, in fact, my servant. And Moses, you'll remember, goes to Pharaoh, goes to the king of Egypt, does these things. And in many instances, the people from uh, the, the Egyptians can mimic or pretend to mock some of these signs that God does. But at a certain point, they run out of their ability to pretend. And at a certain point, they get completely outpaced, where even the magicians turn to Pharaoh and they say, this has to be from God. We cannot continue to keep up with these signs. This man is from God. And Pharaoh continues to harden his heart. And you know how that story goes. But the reason I show that story is because Moses does these miraculous works, not because the people of Israel who are to follow him are to say, we should go and do these miraculous works as well. The people of Israel who are to follow Moses are to believe that Moses is from God and is who he says he is because of the works that he does. So this is true for us in the Old Testament, and it remains true for us in the New Testament. In fact, if you will turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2, you will see that same testimony confirmed. Hebrews chapter 2. Starting in verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to that which we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by the angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The author of Hebrews is arguing that the reason you can believe the testimony you've been given, the reason you can count it as the testimony from God, is because God bore his own witness to it with the miraculous. God bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and God gives the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit to confirm that initial message. And so the author of Hebrews is arguing the same thing that God tells us in Exodus chapter 4. It's actually the same thing Paul argues in 2 Corinthians. Listen to these words of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, If I had been a fool, you forced me to do it, for I had been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these other super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with the utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what way were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Paul then arguing that the only thing he did that was not performed in all the other churches was asking them for a donation or a tithe for his ministry. But he says he performs all the same signs, wonders, and miraculous works to confirm his apostleship that he does in all the other churches. And so Paul and the author of Hebrews and Exodus chapter 4 all bears witness to the same kind of testimony that the signs are for the confirmation of the message. The signs are not for us to imitate, the signs are for us to believe and to look on. And if you will turn to a contemporary of Jesus, and I just want you to hear these words as well. John chapter three, Nicodemus goes to Jesus at night. And he says, because he's very perplexed by what's going on, he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. 
Nicodemus, referring to the miracles that Jesus does, doesn't say, show me how to do those miracles so I can do them as well. He says, I know that your testimony is true because no one could do that unless God was with him, and that means his testimony must be from God. So when Jesus does all these miracles recorded in Luke chapter 4, we're not supposed to be blown out of the water and to say, well, how can we go and follow up and do all these same things? What we're supposed to do is we're supposed to say, oh, anything that he says and teaches and does after this is something we should pay very close attention to because the power that he commands is power from God, which means the words that he says are words from God. And so we should listen and pay careful attention to his testimony. Now, this is important for me to drive home, and the reason I'm spending much time on this is because I think that there is a certain kind of perversion that we can do today where we try to imitate, in many ways, the kinds of things that Jesus does. And that is not what we are called to do. In the New Testament era, in the Apostles' era, the sign gifts were given to the church so they could delineate who's from God and who's not from God. But that era closes at the close of Revelation, the Revelation of John, and from that point forward, the New, the New Testament believers are called to test the spirits, which means not that we evaluate the signs and the wonders and the miraculous gifts. We know that the revelation is closed. We evaluate the message that people deliver as opposed to what scripture says. And we evaluate these things against each other. So our measuring rod has changed over time. Our measuring rod now as a New, Te as a, a New Testament believers past the, the time of the apostles is to look at the writings of the apostles, look at the writings of Moses and the whole canon of scripture, and to say, is the teaching that this person delivers on par with the teaching that scripture believes and teaches? And that is our measuring tool. We're no longer evaluating the miraculous to see, is this new revelation come from God to show us how we ought to live our lives? The truth is in the, the, um, the conformity to the rest of the canon of scripture. We don't believe in any new revelation that we are getting. So if the sign gifts back in Jesus's time were to confirm the message, we can know that now that the message has been once and for all delivered sufficiently and completely, we should not be expecting these kind of sign gifts anymore. We should not come to expect that you and I and any one person is going to be doing the miraculous. Now what that does not mean is that we don't expect the miraculous to happen and we don't pray for miraculous healings. What this does mean is that there's not going to be any one person come from God doing these miraculous signs, proof that what they say is from God. That is not the case anymore in the New Testament church. But we are called to pray for those who are sick. We are called to intercede on behalf of those who are ill. And we are called to do so by God and by those same teachers who tell us later that the sufficiency of scripture is true and we can, uh, we can compare the gospel that we've received to the gospel that has been written. And that is how we evaluate the testing of these words. So that is the kind of full counsel of what we are to understand from Luke's recording of these texts. And Luke shows us that Jesus has complete authority, not only over the natural realm, but also over the supernatural realm. And now he's going to tell, go one step further, and he's going to tell us through the next morning of Jesus' ministry, what is the ultimate purpose, what is the ultimate kingdom relationship of what Jesus is doing here on earth. Pick up with me in verse 42. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him, and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. We've reminded you several times, and I'll remind you again, that the primary purpose of Jesus's mission is to preach and to teach. 
His primary purpose is to preach and to teach. He does not need to do the miraculous in order to confirm his ministry, but he does. But he doesn't let us believe that his only purpose is to solve the physical ailments in this world. When Jesus heals these people, that is not a salvific healing. These people might be raised of their physical ailments. Simon Peter's mother-in-law might be relieved of her fever, but ultimately that body will one day once again give out on her. The real reason Jesus comes, the real purpose of his mission, is to show the revelation of an eternal kingdom of God that goes way beyond any kind of natural healing. Even the lame people who Jesus walks and he, he gives them the ability to walk around, they can walk around for what, some 80 odd years before their bodies fail again? Even the people who are blind and he gives the ability to see, they can only see for the expanse of their lifetime. But Jesus' mission is far deeper and far more profound than any kind of physical problem solving that we can see here in the text. And he tells us this himself. He doesn't say that he needs to stay in this town until all the physical ailments are taken care of, and then he's gonna go to the next town and do the same thing. He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. He doesn't even say he's gonna go do these miracles in other towns, although he does but he says he's gonna preach the good news of the kingdom of God to these other towns. And so in this text in the morning, this text from 42 to 44, we're gonna see Jesus's understanding of his own mission and how we are to then understand what the kingdom of God is in fact like. Verse 42 and 43 give us an insight as to Jesus's own understanding of what he's doing and how we as a church can carry out that mission going forward to be faithful and obedient to being his followers. The first thing I wanna point out to you is Jesus' words when he says, I must. He says, I must preach. That word in Greek is day. And you can trace that word throughout the whole Gospel of Luke and you can see when he uses that phrasing to indicate what is the real weight of these wordings, right? Is he just saying he must in some kind of superlative sense? Or is he saying I must in the sense that this has a real salvific ramification to it. And if you follow with me, you're not going to be able to turn there. I just want you to listen to these words and I'll say them so you can jot them down in your notes. Following the I musts, the I must in Luke, we can trace the kingdom as Jesus reveals it. Jesus says here in Luke 4:33, or sorry, Luke 4:43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 9 verse 22. And he says to them, "Who do you say that I am?" And Peter answered him, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Luke 13, 33. And at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Luke 17, 25. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here, or do not go out and follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. 
Luke 19, 5. And when Jesus came to this place, he looked up and he said to them, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must come to stay at your house. Luke 22, 37. For I tell you that scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he who is numbered with the transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment in these things. Luke 24, 7. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day to rise. Luke 24, 26. Was it not necessary, that is that same word necessary, that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Luke 24, 44. This is the last one. When he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything was written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That same word traced throughout Luke's gospel points to us the fact that when Jesus uses this term, he uses it with a kingdom kind of relevance. He's saying that he must do these things, not in the terms of that he wants to or he desires to, but these are on the scale of all of redemptive history, important events that take place. So when he says here, I must preach the good news, he is not saying that he desires to preach the good news. He's saying he has to. It has been laid before the foundations of the world for him to go and preach the good news, and he is only being obedient to the commission of his father. So he's doing these things because he must. He is compulsed to do so. It is necessary for him to go and to preach the good news. So we know the urgency of these things. Then the question is, well, what is the good news of the kingdom of God? What does Luke tell us about the good news of the kingdom of God? What can we ascertain from Luke's gospel about the kingdom of God? Well, we know that the kingdom of God is one of those things, and I'm sure you've heard this saying, it's the already and the not yet. You know, it's something that is already here in Christ's atoning work and his ascension to the right hand of the Father, but it's not yet fully realized in the sense that we can't fully grasp it and we don't have a full understanding of it in our lifetimes. And so in Luke's gospel, he gives us a little bit of a picture of how near the kingdom of God is to us. And I want you to listen to those kinds of phrases. Luke 10, 9, 11 says, Heal the sick and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. The kingdom of God has come near to you. And whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, and shake the dust off of your clothes and wipe them against you. And nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has in fact come near. Luke eleven twenty, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has in fact come upon you. Luke 17, 20 and 21, when Jesus is asked by the Pharisees what the kingdom of God is like, he says, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, and here it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is already in the midst of you. And if that is difficult to ascertain how it can already be in the midst and not yet come, we know that our lived experience kind of testifies to the fact that we don't feel the full revelation of the kingdom of God in this life. We still feel the brokenness of sin. We still feel all the, all the brokenness of uh, our sin-filled state, and also we know that other people feel the oppression of sin. It's not just that those who are sinners feel sin, it's that all people, those who are born again by the blood of Christ, and those who are still in darkness feel this affliction. But we know the kingdom of God is in some senses already here. Remember, Jesus commands his disciples to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So we know that in some sense we are to expect it, and in some sense we're supposed to continue to usher it in. And we know that the ultimate hope and the ultimate picture of that is in Revelation 21.4, where it says that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away, and he who is seated on the throne has said, Behold, I am making all things new. That's Revelation 21.4 telling us ultimately what the kingdom is to be like. But we know that we live in this kind of in-between, 
where Jesus says it's already here, it's already in your midst, and yet we have the lived reality of the fact that it's not quite come yet because Jesus hasn't fully ruled and reigned over this earth in a way that we can say the earth is perfect, right? Because the kingdom of God is perfect. In fact, in that same Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it already is in heaven. So the kingdom of God is already present in heaven. It's already established. It has been so since the crucifixion and the ascension of Jesus. And on earth, we are waiting for the unfolding of that kingdom to take place. And that doesn't happen frustratingly on a kind of timeline that you and I like. In fact, it very frustratingly happens on the scales of thousands of years, which has caused much frustration throughout church history. And we live even in a day and an age now where if you're older than the age of 20, you know exactly how frustrating it is to be alive in this time, to see a world that is falling away, a great many number of people who have been deceived by the evil one, a great many number of people who hear the gospel preached and reject it. And we live in this reality on a daily basis. And we know how frustrating that is. And we can say with a very real sense of urgency, how is it right that God's kingdom has already been achieved, already been established, and is yet not fully come down right now? Why is that not fair? Why is it not that his kingdom is present throughout the whole world? Well, we know one thing about the kingdom of God is that his kingdom is one of holiness and perfection and justice. And so if his kingdom were to come down right now, there's a great many number of people who would perish in their sins forever. Because the kingdom of God is not a kingdom of unholiness. It cannot accept with it wickedness. And when Jesus tells us, or when uh, actually Paul tells us, or sorry, Peter tells us this, he says that his kindness and his patience is not in such a way that we should grow angry with God, but his kindness and his patience is so that a great many more people will come to salvation. The reason God is patient to, to withhold the full weight of the kingdom of God is because if he brings the full weight of the kingdom down, that's it. There's no more salvation to be offered. In fact, the hand of salvation extends so far as the kingdom of God is not being fully realized on this earth. And in that time of patience is when the kingdom of God is in the already and the not yet. But when the kingdom fully comes, when Jesus comes again, he doesn't come offering an olive branch and salvation. He comes offering judgment and a sword. And so in a real sense, even though we feel the frustration of that, we should really pray for the kingdom of God to delay just a little bit more so that we can save a great many more people in our lives. Think about the people that you know in your life who don't yet know God. Think about the people that you know that have yet to hear the gospel. Think about the people that you have intended to share Christ with and that you have not had the chance to, or maybe you've been too scared to. And think about the fact that it is God's grace that the kingdom has not yet fully come because he's giving you yet another opportunity to share Christ, Christ with that person. And the kingdom of God delays so far as God's patience allows. But one day his patience runs out. And one day, as John the Baptist says, the ax is laid at the root of the tree. And then there is no more time to delay. That the kingdom of God comes and it comes in such a way in which justice is perfectly dealt out. And when justice is perfectly given, that's a problem for people who are still dead in their sins because they pay fully for their sins. You and I, we've had our sins fully paid for. Jesus has come and he has died in our place and he has atoned for our sins fully and he has bought with great cost to himself the blood that it was gonna cost for us to get into heaven, but he's paid that price. And he's not only paid that price, but he's also put his Holy Spirit in us to make us glorified so that when we die and we enter into the kingdom of heaven, that we won't ruin it when we get there. And we know that for the kingdom to stay perfect, 
that's how it always has to be. And the only way for people to get to that glorified state is to confess Jesus as Lord, to accept him as their savior, and to die to self and live to Christ. That's the only way that happens. Jesus says that the only way that someone gets into heaven is about to confess him with their mouth and believe in their hearts that Jesus raised him from the dead, that they must be born again to enter into the kingdom of God. And we, as Christians, need to remember the fact that although we long for this kingdom to come in, it is by the delay of that kingdom coming that a great many more people are to be saved. Jesus tells Paul that the reason he hasn't come yet is because in Corinth, there's a great many more people who Paul has to go get to save. And the reason we can believe that Jesus has not come yet for his church is because there's a great many more people who need to be evangelized. There's a great many more unreached people groups in all the world who have not yet heard the name Jesus and have not been able to accept him as Lord and Savior. And so you and I bear the burden to usher in the kingdom of God by going forth and proclaiming the gospel. You want the kingdom to come so bad? Get the gospel out to all the world and let it happen. That is how the kingdom of God comes in. But we also know this, that it is not as though any will be lost. Jesus says in John chapter 6, and I will close here, John chapter 6, verse 37. He says, all who the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That means anyone who confesses Jesus as Lord, he never casts them away. Anyone who professes Jesus, who repents of their sins, who believes on him, he will by no means cast those people away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that is given to me. But I will raise it up on the last day. There's a guarantee that those who confess Jesus as Lord have a guarantee for salvation on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. The conclusion, therefore, is that the kingdom of God, as it ushers in, has a guarantee of salvation. When you confess Jesus as Lord, he says he will never lose you which is good news for all of us who struggle with the assurance of our salvation, because Jesus has come in a way that is manifestly better than anything we could ever believe. But reflecting back on this text here, I think it's fitting for us to come to a close and a really sober realization, which is that when these people see the signs of Jesus, it is not always a good thing that they get this kind of revelation. In fact, when Jesus is lamenting over these fallen cities in Matthew 11, verse 20, he laments and he says that he almost wishes these signs weren't performed in Capernaum and in Galilee and in these regions. He says it this way. He begins to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. He says, woe to you, Cherazon, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works that had been done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and in ashes. But I tell you that it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and for Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, you will be exalted to heaven, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works that had been done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment in the land of Sodom than it will be for you. These people in Capernaum see the miraculous works of Jesus. They see his hand go forth, and yet they reject him. They have such a great opportunity to respond to his message of salvation, and they reject it. And that is a sobering reality for each and every one of us who lives in America, where we can have ready access to the gospel, where we can have ready access to scripture, where we can have ready access to good gospel teaching. 
And we know that the burden to, to repent is yes on all people, but yes, it's even more so on those who see the mighty works of Jesus go forth in a real way. So take heed and take warning to that truth that these people have a much higher burden of responsibility to repent than other people who do not see these same kinds of mighty works. And so it is true even today because God is a just judge, which means if you have more opportunities to repent and you choose not to every single time, he has a harsher judgment at the other end of that. And that is not unfitting, that is a fitting and a just judgment that he has declared. And so be warned and also be excited because the kingdom of God is one day coming in a way in which all of the pain and the hurt and the sin that we see in our lifetime will one day be relieved. And we as Christians get to look forward to that hope, knowing that one day, all the pain that we experience, all of the brokenness, all of the suffering will be atoned for and taken care of. And we will almost have no recollection of the brokenness on this earth. Paul says that I am sure that the sufferings of this present time are not to be compared to the eternal weight of glory. And that is the truth and the confirmed promise of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your day, uh, this day. And we thank you that uh, as this is the Lord's day and we are able to rejoice uh, with the saints and we are able to study your word together and understand your text, Lord, I pray that it would penetrate deep into our souls not in a way in which it stops at the brain level and makes us feel smarter, like we know more about the text, but Lord, in a way that gets straight down to the heart and into the lived daily reality of our lives. That we would walk forth from this moment changed, meditating on your truth, impacted by it, maybe with a real practical step to take in terms of how we can go forward and share this good news with others. Lord, you have been so kind and so gracious to us to show us your truth, to reveal yourself to us, to tell us exactly how good you are. And Lord, I'm so thankful for that blessing in my own life. I know that each and every one of us here who is a child of you can attest to that same gratefulness in our hearts. And so Lord, I pray that we would not soon forget that gratefulness, that we would with a great reverence hold on to the pearl that we have that was bought at great price and that we could ultimately reflect on that and glorify you in it because it's not for our good that you have done these things, but it is for your glory. And I pray that we can serve ultimately to that end as well. And Lord, I pray all these things in your holy and in your precious name. Amen.